So today, uh, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to go through Hebrews chapter 5. So, you know, uh, to preach and cover an entire chapter, we're really doing kind of an, really an overview um, because we could spend a lot of time just in one chapter of the book of Hebrews or any book of the Bible. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that, remember, this, these are letters. So we say the book of Hebrews, but the reality is this is the epistle to the Hebrews. That's just a fancy word for letter. It's the letter to the Hebrews. So we call it a book of the Bible, but this was a letter written to a church. And when that church received this letter, they, they read the entire letter. So very often we do like we're doing. We're taking a book of the Bible, and on Wednesday night, we're going verse by verse very slowly, just talking through it, studying through it. Uh, on Sunday morning, I'm going to go over the entire chapter of Hebrews 5. So it's kind of an overview, but keep in mind, this is a letter that the whole thing. So it's not just chapter 5 or chapter 2 or chapter 7, but all of it together makes the entire letter. And we can't really understand what the letter is about unless we understand it in the context of its entirety. So we're going to talk about some things today, just like we did last week, that are going to lead into next week's chapter and the following chapters. So Hebrews chapter 5, Follow with me as I read. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he, is, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you. For that good news that has the power not only to save us, but to change us and transform us. Lord, to conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask that you would today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take your word, Lord, illuminate it, and use it to transform and change us, that we would be your people, your church, that would bring glory and honor to your name in this world. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here in Hebrews chapter 5, we again see that uh, Jesus is our high priest. So remember, when this, 
when we began this study, the beginning of this letter, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of believers who are Hebrews. Thus, it's called the letter to the Hebrews. This group of Hebrews was in Italy, and they wanted to go back to Jerusalem and sacrifice in the temple. And so the writer of this letter is, is encouraging them not to do that, to hold on to their faith and not to revert back to trying to atone for their sins through the works of the law, through animal sacrifice and deeds of the law. And he writes and he says, you know, Jesus spoke by the prophets by various means, but now he speaks to us by his son. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better. And under the Mosaic system of the law, when God gave the law to Moses, Moses' brother Aaron was made the high priest. And the priesthood was descended through Aaron. So unless you are a descendant of Aaron, you could not be a priest. And so in chapter 5, we see that the writer is reminding them that you go back to that temple, yes, there's a high priest there, but he's really not your high priest. Jesus is our high priest. And the sacrifice that God wants is not the blood of an animal in a temple. He wants the sacrifice of your praise because Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered his body and poured out his blood as a sacrifice once for all. And Jesus now has ascended to the Father, and he is our great high priest. And Jesus, having been perfected, has become the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this is the theme of this chapter here. And so we see that verse 1 begins here, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God. In, in other words, we need a high priest. God instituted the priesthood because God knew that man needed a priest to mediate for him. We need a high priest, and we need a high priest who understands our weaknesses. The high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's what the earthly priest did. They took the animals, they sacrificed the animals, they applied the blood, and through the work of the priest, the, sin, <clears throat> the sins of the people were atoned for. By the grace of God, those sins were covered by the blood of animals. And the high priest was to have compassion on the people, since the high priest, being a man, was also subject to the same weaknesses the people were. So a requirement of the priesthood was that they be compassionate of the people, the people who are ignorant and going astray. But remember, no man could just decide to become a priest. So you didn't decide that, you know, I think I'm going to become a priest. And I think I'm going to go to preschool and become a priest to God. That's not how it worked in Israel. Unless you were a descendant of, Jude, uh, of Levi. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. And one of his sons was named Levi. And it was through Levi that the Levitical priesthood came. And so God called Aaron, a descendant of Levi, to be a priest, to be the priest. And the sons of Aaron in succession would be the priest. And so through that tribe came the priest. Jesus, remember, was not born of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. So becoming a priest in Israel was not just something anybody decided to do. It was a calling that came from God, and it was a calling that was passed through by birth. It's an office that was appointed by God and continued through birth. Now in Christ, we have a great high priest, and all who belong to Christ are his royal priesthood. And you might say, well, well, how did 
Jesus become the high priest if Jesus didn't come from the same tribe Aaron did? Well, because remember, how did Aaron become a priest? God called him and made him a priest. But who was always meant to be the priest? It wasn't Aaron. It was always meant to be Christ. And so Aaron and every earthly priest was just a foreshadowing of the great high priest who was to come. Now in Christ, he is now called our great high priest. And all who belong to Christ are called his royal priesthood. In Christ, we may come boldly to the throne of grace. Remember, every week we come up here and I invite you to come for prayer. And it's not that I have any ability to provide healing or anything. I'm just a vessel. You're just a vessel. You could pray for somebody and God could, through your prayer and through your faith, bring healing to someone if the Lord willed to do that. I'm not special because I'm a pastor. Pastors don't have some special connection to God that you don't have. I just have a vocation and a calling that you may not have. But if you are in Christ, just like I'm in Christ, if you're saved like I'm saved, if you're trusting Jesus like I'm trusting Jesus, the Bible says you have the same spirit of God in you that I have in me. We just have a different calling. But it doesn't mean that you have more of the Spirit or less of the Spirit because you're a pastor or not a pastor. You get that? In other words, God can work through you just as easy as he can work through a pastor. It's just pastors have different responsibilities and different callings. And part of my calling is to be here every week and to preach and teach the gospel to you because this is equipping you to go out and do the work of ministry. So the point of this gathering is not for us to make this a real super special and attractive gathering so people in the world want to come in here. I wish they would, but the reality is they don't. Because why would they want to come in here if they don't want God? But, but you're here because God has done something in your heart to turn your heart to Him so that you have a desire for Him and in saving you, you come here, you assemble here to worship God, to be equipped for the work of the ministry and what you're supposed to do, I'm supposed to equip you, and then we're all supposed to go out into the world, and we're supposed to make Jesus known and let our light shine and be salt to the, to the world around us and evangelize and make disciples. So you should be making disciples, I should be making disciples, and as we go out and we spread the gospel of Jesus, and we let our life speak to others and minister to others through our words and through our actions, then we bring people with us to the house of God, and they get equipped, and they go back out, and this is how, this is how we've come to be here today. Throughout history, people have done that to the point that the gospel has spread all the way to Taylor, Texas, 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. And here we are, and it's going to continue to spread and continue to grow and continue to fill the earth from generation to generation to generation because we're called to be faithful people, faithful disciples of Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling these believers, Jesus is your high priest, don't look to another. Jesus is your sacrifice that atoned for your sin, don't look to another. In fact, he says, now you are a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Listen to what Peter writes. So in Christ, we have become kings and priests to our God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. You also. That was not written to you, but it was written for you. And the you also applies to us also. We are, in Jesus Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Peter goes on, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You're not just a priest, but you are royal. Because Jesus is not just a high priest, he is the king of kings. And if you are a son of God in Jesus Christ, that means you are 
part of his royal family. And if you are a son of God in Jesus Christ, that means you are also part of his priesthood. Thus, John writes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, listen to this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I want you to, I want you to see that. I want you to get this. I want you to never forget that you have been washed from your sins by the blood of Jesus. It's not your tears. It's not anything else. It's, it's the blood of Jesus that washes us from our sins. We should be sad about our sin. We should be repentant of our sin. But it's not your many tears that will wash away your sin. It is only the blood of Jesus that will wash away your sin. And so he's washed us from our sins in his own blood, verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus has made us kings and priests to God. Now, that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. That means you are a priest and you are a king. That means you have access to the presence of God, to the throne of God. That means, just as Peter says, you offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. This is our life. This is our worship. Now in Christ, we are kings and priests to our God, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, namely our bodies and the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Brothers, I beg you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Our bodies are the living sacrifices we offer up to God. That's our obedience in faith. And the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. Versus the picture we see in the children of Israel, that's been presented to us here in the letter to the Hebrews. Remember in chapter 4, they did not enter into the promise because of their disobedience. And their disobedience was their unbelief. They did not believe the promise of God. So if we are people of faith, our faith produces obedience. Christ did not take it upon himself to become high priest. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you, Psalm 2, verse 7. God says of Jesus Christ, you are my son today, I have begotten you. I want you to understand that's not saying Jesus was created because Jesus is not created. Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is eternal. He is the creator. Not, he is not created. Jesus is the person of God through whom and by whom and for whom everything was created. But God begot his son. He brought his son into this world born of a virgin. So Jesus took on human flesh he became a man so that he could ultimately become our great high priest. Jesus did not take it upon himself to become a high priest. He was called by God, ordained by his father to be high priest. Verse 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever. When does forever begin? It doesn't. Forever is forever. It has no beginning and it has no end. It is forever. You are a priest eternally according to the order of Melchizedek. This is what God said concerning his son. So Christ is called a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now don't worry if you don't know who Melchizedek is. When we get to chapter 7 of of Hebrews, we're going to talk in depth about him. So just, just put a little bookmark there, and we'll come back to him in more detail in a couple of weeks. 
Christ was not a descendant of Levi, remember? He was not a descendant of Aaron, but Christ came from the tribe of Judah. The priesthood didn't come from Judah, but it came from Levi. But God calls Jesus a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, all those born again in Christ are the royal priesthood God has raised up through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we just read, remember, in Peter and in Revelation. But here's what you need to know. Jesus did not replace Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. The way we need to think of this is that Aaron and the Levitical priesthood was in place until Jesus, the true eternal high priest, took his place. Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, all of those priests who offered all of those animals for all of those centuries were just foreshadowing the priest to come and the sacrifice to come. Every goat, every sheep, every turtle dove, every bull, every animal sacrificed to God foreshadowed the blood of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. They were just pictures pointing us to road signs pointing us to Jesus. It is the blood of Jesus that washes us and cleanses us from our sin. It is Jesus who is our high priest, who lives to ever make intercession for us. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And there is nothing we can do to change that. And there is nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves from our sins. There's no work we can do. There's no penance we can pay or pray. There's nothing we can do. It is only what God has done in Jesus Christ. The only solution for our sin is the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we need to look to the blood of Jesus and trust in the blood of Jesus, run to the cross, and cry out for the mercy of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't take for himself that position of priesthood. It was given to him by God, and it was his eternally. And then in verse 7, it says, who in the days of his flesh, this is speaking of Jesus, not Melchizedek. You have to read the Bible carefully here, and you have to know English grammar, or you might get confused. He's talking about Jesus. So also Christ did not. The subject is Christ. And so Christ, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications and vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Let's pause right there. Where is this taking place? This is the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to the Father. Lord, if this is possible for this cup to pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. And and the Gospels tell us that Jesus travailed so intensely in prayer that he, he sweated great drops of blood. This is the suffering Jesus is going through in the garden. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to. When, he's, when he writes these words, that in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. It says Jesus' prayers were heard because of Jesus' godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what verse 8 is telling us and think that somehow Jesus was disobedient and God the Father had to teach him obedience. You do realize that there was no disobedience in Jesus. Jesus was never disobedient to his Father. Otherwise, Jesus would have been sinful. You realize disobedience is a sin, right? Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, when you disobey your parents, you know what you're doing? You're sinning. And even the smallest disobedience of Jesus to his parents or to his Father in heaven would have been sin. 
Jesus could not have atoned for our sins because he would have been tainted himself by sin. He would not have been the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. So we know Jesus was sinless. Therefore, verse 8 cannot be meaning that Jesus had to learn the hard lesson of obedience and learn not to be disobedient. Jesus went through preparation to become our great high priest. That's what this is referring to. Remember, the high priest offered sacrifices not only for the people, but for himself. And the high priest was required to be compassionate and caring. And in his own weakness, he was to be compassionate for the weakness of the people in offering up sacrifices on their behalf. In the days of his flesh refers to the life and the ministry of Jesus here on this earth leading up to his death and resurrection. The prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to his father were offered up as Jesus was going through the necessary preparation that would qualify him to become our great high priest. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with cries and tears to God who is able to save him from death. This does not picture Jesus being fearful of death. Jesus was not afraid of death. Jesus was not afraid of dying. This pictures Jesus in preparation to become our great high priest. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer being tempted so that he could aid us who are also tempted. His obedient preparation took him through temptation, suffering, and death in order to become our great high priest who could aid us in all of our weakness. Remember, chapter 4 says he was tempted in every point just like us, yet without sin. Jesus can identify to any temptation you have any pain you have, any suffering you have, because he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to go through the experience of obediently walking through the suffering that was necessary for him to become our great high priest. Christ was always the destined high priest, but it was not until he walked out his earthly obedience in the flesh through suffering and then ascended to the Father in glory that he became our perfected or our completed high priest. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This does not mean Christ was disobedient, had to learn obedience. It means Christ had to walk out his obedience. He had to experience it in his humanity, even though obedience is inherent in his divine, sinless nature, Jesus in his humanity had to walk out his perfect obedience before the Father, thus qualifying him to be our great high priest. Obedience was his experience. Obedience was... His choice, it was His will to walk in obedience before the Father. And He effected it voluntarily on our behalf that He might be the measure of righteousness before God. Christ was always obedient as the Son of God. That kind of obedience He did not learn. Christ had to learn or walk out a special obedience that could only come through his experience of suffering. And his obedience to suffering was necessary for Christ to become that high priest. Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The obedience of Christ through suffering was necessary for him to be a high priest who could identify with our own weaknesses Though Christ was without sin, he himself suffered, being tempted so that he could aid all of us who are tempted. Sometimes you may be tempted to think, 
God doesn't know how I feel because he's God and he's never had to experience this. No. On the contrary, that is exactly why Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh and blood and lived as a man. He lived in sinless perfection in his humanity, walked out that sinless perfection in obedience to his Father and has become our great and perfected high priest. Verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Through his obedience and suffering, Christ was perfected. Again, that doesn't mean Christ was less than perfect. That word perfect, I want you to think about the word complete. Christ was perfected, or Christ made complete all that was necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness, in order for him to become not only our great high priest, but also the author of eternal salvation. Remember when Jesus comes to John in the River Jordan, and John says to Jesus, you should be the one baptizing me. And Jesus didn't dispute that, but Jesus said that all righteousness be fulfilled. You must baptize me. John recognized Jesus for who he was and says, you're the Messiah. You're the one that should be baptizing me. Jesus said, no, in order to fulfill, in order to complete all righteousness, that everything is completed that I can be who I am destined and ordained to be so that I can become the author of eternal salvation, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. That's what this is saying. Jesus walked through his suffering. Jesus walked obediently through his suffering that he completed everything necessary for him to become not only the high priest for us, but the author, the author of eternal salvation. So in these verses, we see Christ being prepared and consecrated for his office of high priest that he received when he ascended to the Father. And Christ entered his eternal priesthood after the human experience these verses reveal to us after he was perfected. Having been perfected, Christ became the author of eternal salvation. The salvation that you are given in Christ is not a temporary salvation. It's not a salvation with a shelf life. It's not a salvation that you're going to lose if you don't do just the right thing to please God. It's called an eternal salvation. You cannot lose it because you did not find it. It, or more correctly, He found you, and He will not lose you. Your salvation is not what you possess, but more importantly, your salvation is who has taken possession of you. You possess it because you have become God's possession in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is eternal because the one who possesses you is eternal. And his love for you is eternal. And the work he did in becoming the author of your salvation is an eternal work. This eternal salvation is to all who obey him. And we're not saved by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what the Bible teaches us. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. To to obey him is to trust him. Our obedience is bound up in our faith. If you say, I trust Jesus, you're also really saying, I obey Jesus. Because they're not two separate things. They're one and the same. So you go back to chapter 4 of this letter. And why did the children of Israel die in the desert? Why did God let them wander for 40 years until every one of them dropped dead in the desert except for two people, Joshua and Caleb? And Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter into the promised land, the only two from that generation previous, because they believed God. But all the rest of the children of Israel went with the unbelievers and said, no, we can't go into the land because the giants are too big. 
And what they really said was, the giants are bigger than our God. What they should have said was, the giants are big, but our God is bigger, right? But they didn't say that. And the Bible says, they did not enter in because of their disobedience. They did not enter in because of unbelief. So God equated their disobedience to unbelief. And he does the same for us. For we cannot say that we trust in Jesus and then live disobedient lives because faith and obedience go hand in hand. We're not saved by obedience. We're saved by faith. But in our faith, God expects us to be obedient because our faith should produce obedience in our life. obey him is to trust him so then to trust him is to obey him and this is the subject of this letter the the disobedience of those who died in the wilderness was their unbelief they did not believe the promise of god the desire of the hebrews addressed in this letter who professed faith in jesus was to go back to jerusalem to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins in the temple Their desire does not speak of faith and obedience, but of unbelief and disobedience, even if they didn't think of it that way. Even if they said, look, I trust in Jesus. I just want to go back to Jerusalem and offer an animal. It'll It'll make me feel better. No, because in offering that animal, you're saying the blood of Jesus is not sufficient. Either the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you from your sin, or it is not. Is it, or is it not? Now, we're all going to say it is, but how do you practically live your life? Do you live with regret and shame, lamenting your sin, or have you given that to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for cleansing me with your blood. Now, let's move forward, and let's live a life of faith and obedience and honor God and let him use us for his glory. God can't do that if we're stuck in the past because we can't get past our sin. The blood of Jesus takes away our sin. That's how we get past our sin. We we wash it under the blood and it's gone. And now we look ahead to what God has for us in Jesus Christ, in His grace, through faith. If we look to anyone or anything other than Jesus to atone for our sin, we are in unbelief. We are in disobedience to God, no matter how sincere or how well-intentioned we may be. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was ordained to be the author of eternal salvation and the great high priest of God's people. All other earthly priests only foreshadowed Christ until he came to take his office as our great high priest. Christ was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 7. But the point is, Jesus was always our high priest. He was the one, ultimately, that God would send to mediate for us, to advocate for us before the Father. Then in this letter... The writer here goes on and he mentions Melchizedek and he says in verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here is, here is a warning to these believers. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have, become, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or he is immature. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I want you to pay attention to verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. That's using your senses and using your sense. Exercising it to discern both good and evil. In other words, we are all expected to grow up to full age and maturity in Christ. And the writer here is telling these believers, you have 
digressed into immaturity. You, you can't even eat meat anymore. You have to have milk now. You can't understand because your hearing has become dull. So the writer brings correction in reminding the believers that they ought to be teachers, yet they need someone to teach them again the basic principles of the oracles of God. They need milk now. They can't eat solid food. They have forgotten the foundational principle. They can no longer endure sound teaching. They need milk. When they should have been demonstrating maturity, they were reverting to childish, immature things. When they should have been teaching the word, they were in need of someone to teach them the very basics of the word. We need milk to grow, right? There's a reason why all these little babies nurse at their mother's breast. They need milk to grow. But if, if you walked in here and you saw someone drinking milk from a bottle, I mean, if you walked in here and you saw me drinking a baby bottle, you'd think that's kind of weird, wouldn't you? I mean, straight up, just a baby bottle. And what do you got in there, Pastor Jeff? Well, I got me some uh, formula with iron. I'm drinking me some milk. You think that that's kind of weird? We have mission meal, but but we're gonna we're gonna drink out of baby bottles. No, we don't do that. We have mission meal. We eat solid food, and the babies drink out of baby bottles, and the babies nurse from their mother's breast. But all the grown folk and all the big kids drink eat solid food, right? Because they've grown up. We, we don't think that's weird physically, just makes common sense. But spiritually, it's the same thing. But we endure prolonged immaturity in the body of Christ when we should be helping our spiritual children and brothers and sisters grow to maturity and transition from the milk to the meat, from milk to solid food. And that's what the writer is saying. You guys have been in the faith long enough that you should be teaching, but you're still drinking milk. And you can't endure the things that I need to tell you because you're dull of hearing. And your desire to go do these things that you want to do is just reinforcing this reality. It's like our little children. They're immature. They, they, they want to do immature things. And we expect that because they're children. But as they grow up, we don't endure that immaturity, do we? And we say things like, stop acting like a child. Now, we don't say that to the ones that are six months old, that are crying because they need milk. We don't say, now you stop acting like a child. No, because they need, they need milk. But if I look at these two boys right here, I could say, stop acting like a child because they're old enough to know better. Or some of these other ones are old enough to know better. Or us adults, we're old enough to know better. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. Stop acting like children. You're old enough to know better. Why are you doing this? So we grow by drinking milk, but then we reach a point where we eat solid food, and solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. We grow by exercising our senses. That means we are to read and study and exercise our senses beyond what may be comfortable or easy for us. In other words, if we're going to grow up in God, we will need to push ourselves beyond our normal comfort zone. I mean, when you were in school, did you ever tell your teacher, you know, this is just too hard for me. I'm not going to do this. You may have said that, but they didn't let you get away with that, did they? Or if they did, you, you flunked out in second grade, right? And you didn't advance beyond that. No. We don't do that in any part of life in reality. If you want to run a marathon, you don't start by running 26 miles the first day. You start by running, in my case, I might just need to start by running around the, you know, the block, maybe just Maybe run out my front door to my mailbox and back. That might be where I need to start. You know, I don't know. 
But if I'm going to really run a marathon, I'm going to have to keep pushing myself to grow to the point where I can run 26 miles. Or if I want to bench press 500 pounds, I may have to start with 100 pounds. But if I stay with 100 pounds, I'm never going to get to 500 pounds, which means I'm going to have to push myself. I'm going to have to exercise my muscles so that they will grow and increase in strength. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in terms of our spiritual life. You can't just keep reading the same little scriptures on your refrigerator and say, I've done my Bible reading. You can't just keep pulling the one-liners out of your scripture rock on your desk or somewhere and say, I'm good to go. You're going to have to push yourself. You're going to have to press into the things of God if you want to grow up spiritually. And if you haven't noticed, the problem in America is the church has not grown up spiritually. We're still drinking milk. We're still wanting people to tell us how rich we're all going to be if we just believe it enough and confess it enough and name it enough and claim it enough. I can have that jet. I can have that house. I can have this. When we ought to be believing God for our neighbors and our friends who are lost and going to hell without Jesus. We ought to be on our knees praying and pressing in and finding out how can I reach this brother here? How can I reach this guy here who doesn't know Jesus? How can I see my, my city leadership change for the glory of God? How can I see my national leadership change for the glory of God? How can I see my neighbor changed for the glory of God? How can I see my family changed for the glory of God? Well, we're going to have to exercise our senses. We're going to have to press in. And God will help us even if we don't help ourselves because God will use every means around us, both bitter and sweet. He'll use the circumstances of your life to grow you. But it's much better if you are a willing participant and you press in with Him. You may still have some difficult circumstances to deal with. But here's the point. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. God wants us to grow up to maturity. Ephesians 4.13, till we all come. The context here is Jesus gave gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or a complete man. Think maturity. To the, stat, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning crafty, craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God desires His body to be growing and maturing and effectively working and building itself up in love. Look around at the body of Christ. I mean, look around here. Look at young, look at old, look at everybody that's here. Consider one another and consider how to provoke or to spur one another on to love and to good works. That's the command we're going to see in this letter later on in chapter 10 of Hebrews, where God commands that we do not forsake assembling together. And in assembling together, we're not just to consider ourselves, we're not just to consider God, we're to consider one another and how we are provoking and spurring one another on to love and to good works. As we come to the table, we are commanded to discern the body of Christ. That is to discern and to consider one another. That is a vital part of gathering, of assembling for worship. So as we get ready to come to this table, I don't want you just to consider, to discern that piece of bread and that cup that is the body and the blood of Christ. I want you to discern the body. I want you to Realize that that bread represents not just the body of Jesus broken for us, but that bread also represents the body of Jesus living and vital in the earth. 
that you and I are a part of. And we are to discern one another. We're to consider one another. Each week as we come here, each day as we live, we are to consider one another. Because we are one body under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to get ready to come to the table. The table that is prepared for us by our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. He made a way for us to come to this table by His blood, by His body. As you trust in Jesus, as you are a member of His body, you don't have to be a member of this church, but as a member of His body, you're invited to come to this table. And as you come, I want to encourage you to look around at the body of Christ present here. Christ is present, not in that bread. He's present in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christian, come to the table. Praise the Lord. God is so good and so graceful. Let's stand. Here's your charge. We assemble to worship God and we assemble to spur one another on to love and to good works. The kingdom work God has called us all to is in fellowship with one another in Jesus Christ, our great high priest and our Savior. And he does not leave us alone in that work, but he is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us, even to the end of the age, he promises. We can be assured that we have a great high priest mediating and advocating for us before the Father. In Christ, we are made kings and priests to God, and through all of our life and worship, we offer up spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. The work and privilege of worship is in all our life lived out before God. To keep from becoming dull of hearing, we must be diligent to exercise our senses and to grow up to full maturity in Christ. Do not settle for the lesser things of this world. Be diligent to press into the things of God beyond your level of comfort. Exercise your senses and grow up into Him in all things. Don't be lazy. Ask God to do this by His Spirit working in you. Ask Him to use you for His glory and then trust that He will. Live like He is using you because He is. Be confident in Christ and live bold for His glory. Amen.